In terms of chapter numbers, we are at the halfway stage of Paul's letter to the Romans, having completed now the first eight of 16 chapters. And for the most part, Paul now has covered all the major points of doctrine that are necessary for a proper understanding of the Christian gospel and faith. If you want to know and understand why Jesus came into the world and why this world needed him to come, if you want to know and understand why you need Christ and how you may receive him, well, chapters 1 to 8 of Romans tell you all you need to know. But in some minds, various questions are probably raised and all of us need ongoing help in understanding how all of this works out in practice in our lives. And so in the second half of this letter, that is the direction in which Paul heads, frequently providing additional clarification and application on matters that he's already covered. One such topic is that of God's electing grace. And the plain fact is that it leaves all of us and even the Apostle Paul, struggling with this realisation that there are going to be many, some of whom perhaps we deeply love, who will never be saved. And for Paul, as a Jew, well, this, this also leaves him with the dilemma of coming to terms with where this leaves his nation of Israel in all of this. So in the next few chapters, Paul will be considering two particular truths which kind of run right alongside one another. He's going to provide all Christians of every age and generation, so us. He's going to provide us with further help in understanding the fact that God elects only some for salvation but not others. And he does that as he addresses the issue of the nation of Israel and where Israel stands now as a nation in relation to the gospel and to the church of Jesus Christ and in the ongoing purposes of God. Now, on this issue of the nation of Israel, they are today... Uh, a political and geographical nation in the world. But what is their place today in God's purposes, if any? Well, there are differing views across the Christian community. There are differing views even amongst Reformed evangelicals. And uh, if you go to a Christian bookshelf, uh, if you have a quick browse through YouTube, well, you will find some voices... Uh, far more prominent than mine, far better known than mine, uh, who will actually be in disagreement uh, with the things that I'm going to teach over the next month or so. Uh, but having studied and considered these issues many times over the years, well, I, for one, remain fully persuaded of the position that I've come to through this portion of God's Word and a couple of other places too. Uh, which is also held by other Reformed evangelicals. So, 
some of the things that are in these next few chapters uh, are the issue of some debate. Um, and we need to acknowledge that, but we'll look at things as I believe we should. And I'll say more on that as we arrive at various verses through these coming chapters. But at the same time, I don't want the Israel issue to become so, so all-embracing as it is for some that we see and learn nothing else at all from these next few chapters. There is much for us to learn and to take to heart in these next few chapters. And so this evening we're looking at these opening five verses of Romans chapter 9 as Paul introduces a new train of thought now. And what we discover first of all is this, Paul's burden for the lost. He has a deep burden for the lost. And that comes across in the opening three verses. Now, Paul was under no illusions about the calling that God had placed upon him as the primary apostle to the Gentile world. In Acts chapter 9, we find God giving instructions to a man called Ananias to go and provide assistance to the newly converted Saul of Tarsus. And God makes this declaration about Saul, who we now know, of course, as the Apostle Paul. He is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. All of the apostles would be witnesses to the whole world, Gentiles and Jews. But some would spend most of their time amongst their Jewish brethren, whereas Paul would spend most of his missionary work out to the Gentiles. Of course, he will address Jews and he will preach the gospel to Jews. But God has put his hand upon him particularly to take the news of the gospel out into the non-Jewish world, as we know he does in his missionary journeys recorded in the book of Acts. And there you'll find many references to the Gentiles to whom Paul went. The Gentiles are mentioned quite a lot in relation to Paul. We'll see it in Romans chapter 11 particularly and chapter 15 again. In Galatians and Ephesians, Paul speaks about this particular ministry that he has to the Gentile world. But nevertheless, Paul was a Jew. And unsurprisingly, he feels it very deeply that as he preaches Christ to the Gentiles, as he sees many Gentiles converted, well, perhaps it's beginning to seem to Paul that since those early days in Jerusalem, when people were being added daily to the church, there was remarkable growth in the church in Jerusalem in those early days. Well, perhaps by comparison now, Paul's not seeing so many Jews coming to faith and his ministry by and large, is to the Gentile world. Now, Paul's zeal in taking the gospel to the Gentiles makes very clear his commitment to that work that God has given him to do, but he cannot hide his deep grief and sorrow at knowing that so many of his fellow countrymen have rejected Christ and that they are heading for a lost eternity. The reality is that many of the Jews actually are raging against Paul and against the church. 
much of the persecution that came upon the, the early church initially was actually at the hands of the Jews. Many of the Jews, many of the Christians had to leave Jerusalem, leave Israel, because of the persecution that was coming against them. And of course, Paul himself at one point had been chief persecutor. The Jews were enraged at the continuing claim that Jesus of Nazareth was the resurrected Messiah. They were especially angered at the abandoning of so many of their traditions which they held so dear. In particular, of course, things like circumcision and following the rules and rituals for Old Testament worship. Many of the false teachers who caused so much trouble in the early church and who opposed Paul were Jews. And given that there was such animosity against him from within Israel, it might seem strange perhaps to some observers to hear Paul speak this way about Israel. Might not he rather have hardened his heart against them in return? That's kind of how the world thinks, isn't it? If they're so hard against me, well, I'll just harden myself against them. But no. It's as if Paul is saying, I understand that this might come as a surprise to you. But I want to assure you, verse 1, this is my heart towards my countrymen. With Christ and his Spirit bearing witness, this is the truth of the matter. My sorrow is great. My grief never goes away. He has this constant burden within him. When he thinks of the vast majority of the Jewish nation who have rejected Christ in unbelief. They may be his countrymen according to the flesh, verse 3, but his sorrow over them is that they are not his brothers and sisters in Christ. I would even trade in my own salvation if it meant that they would be saved, verse 3. Now, of course, Paul knows that's not how it works. But if it could, he would. His heart for them is like the parent who, on hearing that their child has some awful disease, is immediately overtaken with the sense of being able to want to swap places with them. Oh, if only it were me instead of them. Uh, that's what we see, for example, in David. Uh, King David, at, at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 18, he's just learned of the death of his son, Absalom. What does he say there? Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died in your place. Absalom, my son, my son. That's how Paul feels in his heart towards his fellow Jews. There's this Christ-like sorrow, just as Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Paul has this great burden in his soul for all of these 
fellow Jews who are rejecting Christ. Uh, This depth and reality of Paul's grief that he expresses here is something to bear in mind as we continue through these next few chapters, as we seek to understand exactly what Paul is teaching here. It's clear in these opening verses, Paul is mourning in sorrow over these many Jewish people who are never going to turn to Christ, who will never be saved. Such depth of grief makes no sense unless that's what he has in view. Why would he have this kind of grief for their present unbelief if he knew actually one day they all will be saved? He wouldn't have that sense of grief and sorrow in his soul if that were true. Well, he may be impatient, looking for the day, but he wouldn't be grieving over them like this. He wouldn't be wishing himself accursed if he knew that their salvation actually is just round the corner. This is genuine grief because he knows that so many in Israel are genuinely lost for all eternity. Uh, One commentator I was reading Uh, He puts it like this. Listen listen to what uh, is written here. Paul, just at this point of the, the epistle, turns with a unique intensity of grief and yearning towards the Israel which he had once led as as a Pharisee, but now had left, because they would not come with him to Christ. Both his natural and his spiritual sympathies go out to this self-afflicting people, so privileged, so divinely loved, and now so blind. Oh, that he could offer any sacrifice that would bring them reconciled, humbled, happy to the feet of the true Christ. Oh, that they might see the fallacy of their own way of salvation and submit to the way of Christ, taking his yoke, finding his rest for their souls. Why do they not do it? Why does not the light which convinced him shine on them? Why do not the voices of the prophets prove to them, as they do now to Paul, the historical as well as the spiritual claims of the man of Calvary. Well, that's it. That's what's going through the apostle's heart. And for me, there are two things in particular which stand out from these first three verses. Here's the first of them. If you persist in rejecting Christ, as so many in Israel did, you too will be lost for all eternity. And you will suffer the torments that your sins deserve. The consequences of saying no to the gospel are very real. That's why Paul is so grieved in his soul. Secondly, for those of us who are Christian believers, if we're honest with ourselves, how many of us 
have ever come even close to the anguish of soul which Paul has over loved ones who are outside of Christ. I have to admit, I find myself wanting. Do you not have loved ones? Don't I? Who are just as lost as those over whom Paul weeps? Are our tears far too few? Are our tears even absent? Are our hearts not nearly as heavy as they ought to be? Is that part of our problem in the Church of Christ today? Is that reflected sometimes maybe in insipid prayers which lack real, heartfelt weightiness? It's not many words, it's not clever words that are needed in prayer, but weighty words coming from hearts which are burdened for the lost. Maybe the starting point needs to be that we would ask that the Lord would grant us such a burden as Paul had. Then maybe we'd really begin to pray as Paul prayed. It's said that that great preacher of a previous century, Charles Spurgeon, would sometimes enter the pulpit to preach and his face and his beard would still be damp from the tears that he had shed as he prayed before the service began. The burden, you see. The burden. A burden for the lost that they might be found, that Christ might be glorified in the saving of souls. Perhaps we lack such a burden. Adding to Paul's grief is what provides us with our second point this evening. The other thing that grieved Paul so much was Israel's squandering of their many blessings and privileges. We see that in verse 4 and through into the first part of verse 5. He's referring here to all of the blessings and benefits that the nation of Israel have known under the Old Testament covenant which God established with them and through them. They are Israelites. They are direct descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Jacob, of course, whose name God changed to Israel. He talks about adoption. Now, the, the doctrine of adoption for individual believers, which Paul speaks of in chapter 8, which we've considered together, that the work of the Spirit is that we cry out, Abba, Father, to God. We're very familiar with that. That wasn't known to Old Testament Israel in the same way. They, they were much more familiar with the concept of God as their father to them as a nation. 
That they did understand. Not so much personally, the way it's emphasized in the New Testament. But they did have that concept of them as the nation of Israel being God's son and he being their father. For example, we we read this in Exodus chapter 4 in the story of uh, Moses. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh which I've put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. And likewise, as a nation, they knew of God presenting himself to them as their father. So, for example, in Deuteronomy 32, uh, it's the song of Moses. And in verse 6, we read this. Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? The words of David in 1 Chronicles 29, Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. So as this called out nation, separated to God, consecrated to God in the world, there was this sense of the fatherhood of God towards them as his people. Hence, there is this reference to adoption there in verse 4. And the glory of God, well, they had witnessed the glory of God in so many ways. The glory of God would be evidenced to the rest of the world through his people. They've seen the glory of God in his being and his person, in his faithfulness, his kindness, his provision, his protection. The glory of God in the the law, the word of God that he's given to them, and all all the ways that speaks to them about who God is. The visible glory of God in the thunderings and the lightnings and the smoke on Mount Sinai. The glory of God which descended upon the tabernacle, representing God's presence amongst them. The way he led them through the wilderness. What glory they'd seen and known. What wonderful ways in which God had displayed his glory through them to the rest of the the world in Canaan. And God had made covenants with them. God had given them promises, all of which he'd kept without fail. Many of them pointing forward to Christ. He'd spoken to them through the prophets. He'd given them his word so that they, they need be in no doubt whatsoever regarding the truth, that they might serve him the way they should. Old Testament women all had sufficient truth and light to be saved believers, with their faith being in God's promised saving work of grace. You only have to read passages like Psalm 51 and Isaiah 53 to see that they had enough gospel light in Old Testament days to be believers. 
There's that long list of faithful men and women in Hebrews chapter 11. Fulsome evidence of all of this. They have all their forefathers. They are the children of this long line of descent which culminated in Christ. What more could they have wanted? What more could they have asked for? What more could God have done for them to prepare them to see and receive the Lord Jesus Christ as their promised one, God's promised one to them and for them? And yet for so many of them, all of that has been to no avail. It's of no effect. It's done them no spiritual good whatsoever. All of these rich blessings and privileges have been completely squandered by them. And Paul is beside himself in grief over them. How can you not see? Why will you not see? And here's the thing. There are some here this evening who are just like them. Just like them. For many years I was. Just like them. Some of you are from Christian homes. You've been raised to know the Word of God and the Gospel of Christ. In addition to that, you've been brought up within a church family. The testimony and witness of many others. All the Bible teaching that you've sat under in various settings amongst us. Maybe there are others... You don't have such a long history of Christian influence in your life, yet here you are this evening, perhaps not for the first time, maybe for quite some time you sat amongst us, and you cannot claim to be ignorant of God's claims upon your life. You cannot claim to be ignorant of His command that you must repent to be forgiven of all of your sins, that you might trust in Christ. You know all about the incarnation, the coming of Jesus into this world, that he might redeem and save sinners. There's nothing about that that, that you don't know. You know all about his sinless life. You know all about the cross that we sang about earlier, how Jesus died as a substitute to pay the penalty for sin that he rose again on the third day in the power of an endless life, that he's conquered sin and death, that in him you too may be raised to newness of life, that you may be assured that your sins are forgiven and that you have an eternal home in heaven. You've heard it made very clear that one day the Lord Jesus will return. Every eye will see him. Every eye. Your eyes will behold him. You will join with everyone else in acknowledging Christ for who he is. But will that be with him as your Lord and Savior? Or will it be with him as your Lord and the judge of all 
who will send you to everlasting torment. Will you also decide to squander all these blessings which God in his grace has poured into your life? Is that what you're going to do? And then finally, Paul shows us in the second half of verse 5, the glorious deity of Christ. Herein lies our hope. Herein lies our joy. Christ came according to the flesh, as we've just been remembering, at Christmas. Just three weeks ago, yesterday was Christmas Day. Feels more like three months, doesn't it? We remembered. He came into the world. Christ. That's the name Christ. That's the Greek translation for the Old Testament Hebrew Messiah. The Anointed One. The One who was promised. The One Israel's been waiting for. He's been... He's been. That's the cry that goes up from the mouths of young children on Christmas morning, isn't it? He's been. I can remember saying it myself (laughs) as a young child. He's been. But sadly, for the most part, they're not talking about Jesus, are they? Paul is. Paul is. He's been. He's come. But for Israel, for most of them, they missed him. Here's the message of the gospel. He's been. Don't miss him. And Paul, in just a few words, reminds us why all of us must stop and listen and consider this Jesus. He is over all. All things, all people, all circumstances. All. Think back just this last week. There was not one second of every day that he was not over. Every place you went, every thought you had, every word you said, every person you met, every piece of news you received, every difficulty you faced, every tear you cried, every laugh you laughed, everything that happened at school, at home, at work, everything that put a smile on your face, every news headline out there in the world, every baby born, everyone who breathed their final breath, there is one who is over all 
He will be this week. His name is Jesus over all. How can that be? How can that be? Because He is the eternally blessed God. Those of you who continue to reject Him, have you ever really paused to consider who it is to whom you are saying no? As Christians, you'll sometimes have people challenge you to show, to show them where in the Bible it explicitly says that Jesus is God. Uh, having never read the Bible themselves, they think they've got you over a barrel on this one. From whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. Who is over all the eternally blessed God. God from eternity is who Jesus is. Paul is brokenhearted that his fellow countrymen do not have the eyes to see. Do you? If you do, then your heart will be repeating the loud amen at the end of verse 5. You must consider this Jesus because of who he is and because of what he's done. Don't put him off till another day because one day you will not have another day. Time will be up. And for all of us who do know and love Christ, let's pray that the Lord may yet burden our hearts for those who don't.